turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I wanted to make a quick explanation um, because I haven't taken time to, to do it in a focused way, but if you're new to us, you've been here the next the past few months, one of the phrases that you'll hear an awful lot whenever we're talking about the scriptures is our desire is to read the scripture as his story, their story, and then make application and understanding for what it means for our story and my story. It's a way that we recognize that the Bible was not written to individuals, and really it wasn't even written in a time where there was even the thought of something called evangelical Christianity. And therefore, we want to really be, we want to honor the context of, of the content of scripture so that we can be wise and discerning in knowing how we make those applications to our lives, number one. Number two, the nature of the way we do sermons. I, I attempt to utilize as best as I can helpful information that speak to the text, but the goal on Sunday mornings is not simply to leave with more information in our heads. So what we don't want to do is simply be like a Bible study when we are coming every week and we're reading over the text. We do want to read the text, but we want to create space for the text to read us. That is how the Bible brings in its power of transformation into our lives as we allow ourselves to submit to the wisdom that it's communicating. But one of the dangers in contemporary evangelicalism, and, and I say this because I know myself, in addition to other conversations I have, is we almost always read the scriptures and think about the other people that would benefit from hearing its message. And sometimes it's individuals. You know, and I, I watch you guys elbowing each other and pointing to me every once in a while. And I know that, uh-oh, I just won somebody's argument for them this week. Um, but, but and, and that level is, it's, that's understandable. That's human nature. I do it. My wife does it. We all do that. I think the one we have to be more subtle about is, man, this really applies to this group of people. And it's almost always a group of people that aren't at the place where they're going to gather on church on Sunday morning. That is the lowest use of scripture to use information to then turn it into pass it through the tree of knowledge of good and evil so now that I'm equipped to pass judgment on other people. That's, that's not the purpose of your journey in the scripture. Your journey in the scripture is first and foremost about your spiritual formation. So we want to honor the scripture in such a way that it, we're not just reading it, but we're giving space for it to read us. And so, so that's what we're going to do this morning as we, as, we, as we dive into the rest of this chapter that, we, that we've been following the past several weeks. And as I said, this is where now it's going to turn, where Paul does get a little bit more proactive in offering instruction. As we've talked about every week, this kind of reads like a thank you letter. And one of the powers of Philippians isn't just simply the content that's communicated in the letter, but looking at the way that content is used by Paul so that we can perceive how Paul is modeling this truth truth. Because at the end of the day, it's not the information, it's the modeling of the truth that cre creates real transformation in our souls. And, and this is where the letter, letter shifts a little bit, and Paul gets a little bit more direct in the instructions that he's given to the Philippians. And so we want to pay special attention here. So we're going to look at four verses, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Let's read those together. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, when, whether I come to you and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, 
not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. So here Paul is moving in a little direct, a little bit more directly before Paul has celebrated the fact that they're his partners in the gospel, that they're his partners in, in, in supporting his, his proclamation of the gospel as his apostolic and missionary work. He's also acknowledged that they're his partnerships, they're his partner because they regularly pray for him and they pray not just with detached apathy, but with real emotional concern. And so much so that their prayer is prayed in such a way that they posture themselves to be willing to be part of the answers of the prayers that they're praying. So they're not just praying, Lord, take care of Paul, Lord, protect Paul, Lord, provide for Paul. As soon as they say amen, they're saying, you know what, as we prayed, the Spirit's prompting me that we ought to help take care of Paul. And so they gather this collection of funds and money and they send it to Paul. And so certainly they're his partners in prayer, but they're always also his partners in tangible ways. But now he's going to take that partnership to a deeper level. And you get to partner with me because now we have the privilege of suffering together. You share in my sufferings, I share in yours, but ultimately this is not my suffering and your suffering, it's Christ's suffering. And we have been invited to enter into a place of Christ's suffering. And it's really, this is a message, an idea, a value that is very much part of the great tradition of Christianity. But modern expressions of Christianity have turned Christianity into kind of a self-help program. So the purpose is that you follow Jesus so that your life's better. You have an easier marriage. You have uh, your kids don't ever do anything that challenges your faith or your confidence in them. Or you, you, never, you never have a discussion with your spouse about whether or not you should terminate your marriage. Or you, you always go to work happy and fulfilled in whatever you do. That Your job doesn't only provide a salary, it provides you with a great source of existential significance. Um, follow Jesus and you won't make mistakes that lead, lead to financial ruin. We've become very pragmatic about how we issue the call to Jesus. And oftentimes we hold the promise of life improvement. This would have been, this is a unique modern expression of the message though. This is not historically the way it's been spoken. Historically, people understood if you're gonna identify with Christ, of course, yes, you're gonna identify with his victory over sin. You're gonna identify with his resurrection life that will animate your body and your soul. But you will also identify with his way and you will identify with his suffering. There's a unique kind of suffering that happens but what happens with the modern gospel self-improvement, we think we're suffering just because someone disagrees with our sentiments. Or oftentimes we're kind of in the flesh and we can be a bit of a jerk the way we speak our message of grace and compassion to those with whom we find disagreement. And then they react to our energy and we say, would you look at that? There it is, I'm being persecuted for Jesus. Well, no, you're being persecuted because you're a jerk. And it's really important that you cultivate a spirit of discernment to know the difference between those two realities. And so we're gonna look a little bit about that because this is the theme that, brought, that Paul brings in. If I were gonna summarize the theme of this 
paragraph, I would say it this way very simply. Be aware of your identity and act accordingly. Be aware of your identity and act accordingly. Now, here's the problem is this. We tend to understand act accordingly, but what we're talking about is act accordingly to the standard of morality that your particular group tends to honor. And as long as you can form your behavior to those external standards, then you're being faithful. No, we're only being faithful if what we do flows out of a rock solid understanding of who we are. That is the only kind of change that lasts. If I am just posing for the significance of being peaceful and accepted around my group, that is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a revelation of a new identity that then results in bearing the fruit of the Spirit. None of this is ever about just gritting your teeth and becoming more disciplined to be a more moral person. This is about going so deeply in a revelation of who Jesus is and therefore who you are because Christ is in you as the hope of glory that then as you live out of that identity, then the morality, if I can say this, becomes effortless because you're not striving to be good. You're simply someone who houses the activity of God in such a way that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is bearing fruit in their lives. And you don't have to scheme or plan for that. It is just there. You don't have to go through programs to learn more patience, more gentleness, more self-control. No, that fruit just emerges from a deep, quiet place within you because it is the Holy Spirit bearing forth that work. That is a big difference between that and behavior modification religion that gives you external standards that then you work really hard to conform to. We are not in the, the operating word for the discipleship we're pursuing here is not conformity, but transformation. We want to enter into transformation and then let that transformation bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So as I've said before, oftentimes when you're reading Paul, and this is a great example of it, these four verses in the Greek, is, it's just a really long sentence. And as I've pointed out before, Paul is prone to do. He is prone to say these long sentences that are filled with modifying prepositional phrases built on top of one another. And sometimes when you're reading it, you can kind of get lost on exactly what is the point. Well, when you come to a paragraph in Paul like that, not that we're going to neglect those prepositional phrases. We want to understand how they are modifying what Paul is saying. But you know, even I've said before, even in your scriptures, in your Holy Bible, in the writings of Peter, he says, be careful when you're reading Paul. A lot of people have made mistakes reading Brother Paul. So he's like, I don't know if that's a dig toward Paul. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe the best in Peter and say he's not trying to undermine Paul there, but he is speaking a very real truth that we can't pretend like all that Paul writes is just really simple to understand. We have to do a little bit of work. Well, one of the tools that I find are helpful, and if you read a more literal translation of the Bible, like um, uh, New American Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version, or the Christian Standard Bible that we use, uh, it's a little bit easier to spot these. And so you might consider, you take a moment and look at the main idea, take out the prepositional phrases, and just see what's being communicated by the two, by the main idea. And in this one, it works really pretty conveniently because it's bookend in verse 27 and in verse 29. So let's take a moment. I'm not taking away from scriptures, but just so that we can get clarity of the, of the primary idea of this paragraph, let's take out the prepositional phrases and look at what Paul is saying. That would be in verse 27a and verse 29. Just one thing. 
as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. For it has been granted to you on granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him, but to also suffer for Him. This is the core carnal idea that Paul then is modifying with this list of prepositional phrases that he adds, and we're going to look at those in just a few moments. So let's take this first little idea, just the first part of 27. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. This is such a fascinating verse. And if you'll notice, if you'll read various translations, the first thing I was puzzled by, there was a group of translations that had this acknowledgement of citizenship in heaven, and then a group of translation, translations that don't mention it at all. And I was, I was puzzled by that. Well, so, so what Paul is doing, if, if you take a moment just to go into your interlinearbible.com and look at some of the, the, the language help that's there, um, you can see very clearly in the original, Paul is using a political metaphor. In fact, this word that's translated, live your life worthy, which is very interesting because as modern evangelicals, certainly whenever I read that, I read that as a moral, morality statement. To live your life worthy is to live a moral life. And if you're being more uh, moral, then you're being worthy of the gospel. Th that, that is not what the idea is for this word. This word translated, live your life worthy, literally means live as a citizen. Go back and read it. That's, that's the definition of it. Live as a citizen, which is why these other translators add that phrase, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy, because it's not real clear just from the phrase itself. Paul knows his audience, my friends. He's writing to the Philippians. And the Philippians at this time and place in history, in their history, were very well aware of the benefits of, of becoming a Roman colony. They became a Roman colony sometime just before the birth of Christ. But nonetheless, that's still a fairly fresh reality in their mind. And, and um, so lots of Roman military personnel, when they retired, they retired to Philippi. So Philippi understood the benefits that came to them by becoming an official Roman colony and housing actual Roman citizens because the privilege of living in Rome was different for those who were citizens and those who were not citizens and those who were slaves and etc cetera, etc cetera. and we can we can we can understand that reality so th they understood the beauty and the power and the benefit and the privilege that came with them being a Roman colony and the pride that they took in being able to live their lives as liberated citizens of Rome. So Paul is taking that idea of which they would have been very familiar and he's saying, I'm going to use this political metaphor to help you understand what your posture ought to be about your identity as citizens of heaven. So what Paul is communicating is that Living worthy of the gospel is to live as a citizen of heaven right now. Not when you die and fly away, but right now. So this idea of worthiness is about recognized as is fitting. In other words, it's not worthy as in deserving, but rather worthy as in keeping with. Now, one of the ways that I think this political metaphor is interesting, we're going to stretch it a little bit and modernize it. Um, think about a U.S. embassy, if you will, for a moment. Of course, 
As we know, an embassy is headquarters for the U.S. government, or really any government in a foreign nation, but I am contextualizing it to American citizens this morning. An embassy is the headquarters for the U.S. government representative serving in a foreign country. It's normally led by an ambassador who is the U.S. president's representative in the host country. He's a stand-in for the authority of the president of the United States. While most governments, while most, while the host government is responsible for the security of U.S. diplomats, the area and, and the area around the embassy, the embassy itself belongs to the country that it represents. Doesn't matter where you are in the world, when you take a few steps, you literally move from one country into another and you come back home. Even if that embassy is in a foreign country, once you step into that land, you're home. You're back as, if you will, in U.S. territory with all the privileges and the authority that come with that. As followers of Jesus, we are called to create places of sanctuary that serve as colonies of heaven in whatever dominant nation we find ourselves. And we create that sanctuary basically in concentric circles of influence. So the first place that sanctuary ought to be is in my marriage. Then the next place where the cultivation of that sanctuary ought to be is in my home with my wife and my kids. But then that place ought to be a place that welcomes those outside of sanctuary. You're welcome to come to this place of sanctuary. And that's how we actually tangibly live out our discipleship. We are called to create places of sanctuary that serve as, serve as colonies of heaven in whatever dominant nation we find ourselves. So he says, so he's communicating, live in a manner that honor, honors the liberating story of the gospel. This is why you don't need great intellect and you don't need to be into reading in order to be an powerfully effective witness for Jesus because we are not witnesses for Jesus because of our intellect and our apologetics training. It is not about what we know, but it's about whether or not our lives embody Christ so deeply that wherever we are, we are representing Christ in that place of engagement. Therefore, joy, authenticity, freedom, and love are the most powerful witnesses to the gospel. How, how many of you were on witnessing teams, knocking on doors, or I mean, I was full-fledged. I mean, I was, you know, we pantomimed the clowns that were getting crucified on the streets and all of that kind of stuff to be a witness for Jesus. But all these programs, and, and have you ever found yourself in the class or in the outreach team. And part of the drive to witness is just to see if it really works for someone else. You're bearing witness to a faith that although it's made you confident you're gonna to go, to to go to heaven when you die, you're still struggling deeply with your own insecurity and depression and besetting sins. And, and, and we still propagate the message, but in some ways we're propagating a message that we would say isn't quite working for us. 
Well, it's because it's about the engagement of letting the gospel transform us that makes us a powerful witness, not the information that we collect. Therefore, the greatest witness you have to your faith is the fruit of the spirit that's being born in your life. Not because you're striving, trying to keep up with all the apologetic podcasts and read all the books, but because you're living your life in Christ and the spirit's manifesting the peace and presence of God through your life and in your life. So if you wanna be a good witness, don't ask yourself whether or not you've read William Lane Craig and C.S. Lewis. Ask yourself, Are you a gentle person? Are you a patient person? Is joy the atmosphere of your life? These are the fruits that make you and qualify you to be a profound witness for Jesus and they're accessible to any one of us. If I wanna honor Jesus, then I have to live as a person that has been transformed by his mercy. If, if you want to honor Jesus, live as a subject or citizen of his heavenly kingdom right now on earth. The consequence for this choice, though, is not comfort, but rather it's suffering. But this suffering puts me in the way of Jesus. And when I walk the way of Jesus, I will experience a deeper revelation of him. And when I experience a deeper revelation of him, I experience a deeper revelation of myself because he is my life. And the only way that gets discovered and deepened is in walking the way. It's always interesting to listen to scholarship. And there's scholarship that it's our faith and scholarship that's suspect of our faith. And I think it's really important to hear from all of those scholars. It's important to hear those who have criticisms for our faith or the way they understand how we've communicated our faith. But it is interesting when you hear critiques of Christianity, within five seconds, I can tell this person hasn't walked the way. They've read books about it, they've studied it, and they have maybe more intellectual superiority than me about the ideology, but they are clueless. I can tell by the tone they haven't walked the way because the way doesn't reveal itself through academic study. The way reveals itself in you being willing to have faith to trust Jesus enough to follow his ways even before you have empirical proof that it quotes works or it is a... um, of practical advantage to your life. But if you walk the way, over time, you will have a wisdom that surpasses that of the scholars because walking the way presents its wisdom to you. And when it does, you begin to walk the way first as a choice, and then you will find yourself walking the way as a flow. You are in the rhythms of grace. And my goodness, my friends, resting And acting and working really hard in the rhythms of grace is so much better than being driven by the demands of religion. Once you're following the Spirit, you will discover you're not being driven anymore. You're being led. And for me, in the process of discernment, I know I may be listening to a lower or less helpful voice if I'm feeling that urgency in me like I'm being driven. Holy Spirit doesn't drive, he leads. But you can't enter into that by information. You have to practice walking the way of Jesus and then its wisdom will become evident to you.
And then you will understand who you really are. Then you'll understand, you know, Stephen Crane, Stephen Crane's poem. I'll post it this week on my Facebook. It's one of my favorite poems. I think it's because I, I went, the man who went before an unknown God or something like that. But it's, you know, I went for a God who was like full of anger and, and, uh, and, and um, sublime power. And, you know, and, I, and, 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 and said to me, you, you need to grovel at my sublime power. I, I'm butchering the poem. Because what I really liked is the last one. And then Stephen Crane writes, so I ran from that God, or the man ran from that God. And he ran to the God that he found in his heart. And the God said, my poor child. And I thought, man, is that not the journey of religion to authentic, authentic relationship with Jesus? That poem is my biography. And I remember the exhaustion of serving that distant God who scared me and then coming to that place of revelation of Christ in me, the hope of glory. And those words were tender. They were gentle and they spoke what I needed to put together the broken pieces of my soul so that I could actually begin to be a healthy presence in the lives of others around me. So I could show up to my life in a healthy way. And so, so we discover that. We discover that when we go on the journey of the way of Jesus and that's revealed from within. Now he speaks a word that's really important for us because modern Christians have been discipled in a philosophy that says you have to know your worldview and you have to know how to defend your worldview, fight for your worldview, and convince other people to adopt your worldview. It's, we come up with these phrases like culture wars to explain what the presence of the body of the Prince of Peace ought to be that as a cultural warrior. Anybody else in the room say, hey, wait a second. I think I'm gonna call foul at that. Why are we all like using this phrase like it's cool and then that like it's godly and holy? The, 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 the followers of the Prince of Peace want to be present as cultural warriors? I don't think so. And so, but there is a place where we do contend for the faith and Paul addresses that. But we need to look closely and this is where we need to look at those prepositional phrases and understand how it is that we are postured to contend for the faith. He says, he says, then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but look at this, also to suffer, with, uh, suffer for him. So the kind of contending that we do isn't connected to victory parties. It's an invitation to suffer with Christ so that those around us can see the embodied incarnational message of Jesus. Not so that we are more clever or we shame them into adopting our ideology. It's a completely different way of understanding our approach to what it means to contend for the faith. The way we're called to contend for the faith is in the same way that Jesus contended for the truth. If the way I contend for the faith puts me in a better position than it did for Jesus, then I'm probably not suffering for him or with him. In fact, it often means that I'm contending in the spirit of those who oppose Christ 
rather than contending in the, contending in the spirit of Christ. The kind of contending I want to express is the kind that allows me to identify with Christ. That means that my so-called contention must be characterized by mercy, forgiveness, turning the other cheek, blessing my opponents, and praying for those who mistreat me. This is the way the bride of Christ contends for the faith of Christ. We do it by following the way of our Lord, not the way of the conquerors that we admire throughout our histories. Our conquerors ride stallions. Our Savior rides a donkey. That is how, that's the spirit in which we contend for our faith. This means that as I contend for the faith, if it comes down to me or my opponent suffering, then I believe it must be me because this is the way of Christ. If there must be a winner or a loser in the ideological realm, then I am willing to lose. I'm willing to lose the ideological battle so that I might win the spiritual battle for this is the way of Christ. Now we can argue whether or not we need that that is the wisest strategy, but I'm not looking for the wisest strategy. I am looking to conform my life to the way of Christ. And Paul's already told us often that strategy is gonna look like foolishness to the world, but that's okay because I'm not interested in winning a culture. I'm interested in being faithful to Jesus and therefore trusting him to make me a real human being as he's been faithful to do all these many years. And I don't want to get off of that track. And my friends, this is not a fringe theme of our scriptures. It's a non-negotiable opinion. It's not a, non, it's not a negotiable opinion. It's the dominant conviction of the New Testament. In fact, in this very letter, we'll look at it in a few weeks. If you want to flip over to chapter 3, here's what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10 of this letter. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Be encouraged. Amen. You are dismissed. But I've told you, I'm not a life coach. God's called me to be a death coach. My goal is to learn how to die well, even before I die, and to inspire others to do the same. Because that place of death is where you encounter the power of resurrection. And you can't get there any other way. Peter expounds on this idea in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through uh, 16, I apologize. I initially was, for time's sake, only going to read verses 12 and 13, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't stay faithful to my efficiency. So we're going to read a few more verses. Dear friends, don't be surprised by when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. I mean, we don't have time to go too far on this, but that is a really fascinating line because it is amazing how much we all act as though something unusual is happening to us when we suffer. So the first thing is, first of all, you got to adjust your expectations. It is not 
up and coming, soaring, 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 and going from Volkswagen to Lamborghini as you stay faithful to Jesus. That's not the message. It's expected. My friends, life is hard. It is difficult. And it is heart-shattering, which makes peace and friendship and joy and celebration all the more miraculous and joyful. And the scripture is really realistic about that reality. So he says, don't be surprised by this. Verse 13, instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now notice that you only get credit for that if you're willing to endure the ridicule. When I get on Facebook, I'm rarely willing to endure the ridicule. I want to say something clever that pushes it back on the other side. Well, I've missed what Peter's talking about when I make that choice. If you endure the ridicule, if for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evil dirt, an evildoer or a meddler. Ouch. As an evangelical, I went, check, check, check. Uh-oh. I thought meddling was how we witnessed. That's what I was always taught. You just right in, don't care about relationship, don't worry about what makes the person cry, what wakes them afraid, what brings them joy. Just go in for the clincher. You know, what is the most important thing about your internal belief system? And is it going to send you to heaven or hell? I mean, it's just like, as I did that all the time, and I realized that's like walking up to a stranger saying, hello, I'm Artie, how's your liver? I mean, we wouldn't do that. But that's how I was taught to witness, essentially, that kind of bombastic thing. Anyway, and I suffered a lot as a meddler and thought I was being a martyr. But that's how this religious spirit works. More on that at another time. Verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but him, let him glorify God in having that name. Now I'm gonna take just a few minutes here because this is a great example that highlights what I'm talking about in our approach of the Bible. If you read that phrase, suffers as a Christian, and what was in your mind is a contemporary evangelical Christian who said the sinner's prayer and goes to church some and, and gives some money and does some good deeds, then you're mistaken in what the Bible's saying in its context. Again, this is hard to wrap our minds around, but the Bible is not an evangelical document. Even in the years following the solidification of this document, it would be over a thousand years before evangelical history, um, evangelical Christianity would have a seat at the table. It is talking about something bigger. It is not talking about someone who went down the aisle and said a prayer at False Creek. But if you did that, I'm not questioning your salvation. I rejoice in it and I clap and I say good for you. And I, I believe in its authenticity, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not trying to belittle that. Did God work in that? Sure. Is this what any of these writers are talking about? Absolutely not. That is 
our own construct that we've added to the foundation. So we want to get down to the foundation. So if we want to understand what he means when he says suffers as a Christian, let's just go to the scriptures. Let's go to the context where this word is first used. And it's first used in Acts 26b. And if we look at that, it just clears away all the complication. Verse 26b of Acts chapter 11 says, The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, not that I doubt or want to belittle your intelligence, but I went ahead and made the notes really crystal clear of the point that I'm trying to make. What is a Christian, according to that verse? It's a disciple. It's not a convert to a particular Protestant cul-de-sac of ideology or theology. But for us, that's mostly what it is now. That's not what it is in context. A Christian is simply a disciple. What's a disciple? It is a pupil. It is a learner. It is someone who is learning how to be a human by following their master, Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. It is not just belief about Jesus. It is a heart that responds and desires to conform and follow the teachings of Jesus. A disciple is someone who learns from Jesus by following him, not just someone who affirms doctrines of the Christian religion. In fact, I know from experience, you can affirm doctrines of the Christian religion and not follow Jesus. That made me religious, didn't make me a disciple. Well, it made me a disciple, but not disciple to Jesus. It was a disciple to a man-made ideology constructed in his name. And we have to be very discerning about the difference. That's not necessarily the same thing as being faithful to follow Jesus. So, how do we respond? Before we gather together at the Lord's table to create some space about how the Holy Spirit might want to read us in this text. Number one, be aware of how you're being discipled. We got to stop talking about disciples and non-disciples because that doesn't exist. We're all being discipled. It's just a question of whether or not we're aware of it. And how aware are we of the voices that are discipling us? It's absolutely critical for us to understand how we're being discipled. One of the most vulgar sins of our time is the tendency to allow our political and national identity to supersede our identity as those called to represent the life of Christ on earth. If the Holy Spirit brings conviction, I implore you to respond to it. It is one of the most in-your-faces, blatant expressions of idolatry in the movement of Jesus that is around today. I'm not sure there are more sins more blatant than this one, to be honest. Now, granted, maybe I'm a little more sensitive to it because I threw myself into such an idolatry. And so I don't want what's my conviction to spill onto you, but it is important that we ponder these ideas. I think it's one of the most distracting sins of our generation. Are the sources of your discipleship making you angry, bitter, and judgmental? You have to engage with that question, not by me, not by your spouse, but for yourself. Or 
are the sources of your discipleship producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because I don't want to tell you what to do, but if your discipleship's leading more to the former rather than the latter, it might be good to consider engaging into a time of self-examination and repentance. Because that's the fruit that ought to be borne by our discipleship. So, the challenge this week. Number one, experiment this week with mindfully eliminating anything that is creating a fearful, angry spirit within you. If that means we don't get to see your penetrating opinion on Facebook as often, so be it. Thank you. <laughs> that is applause worthy. I want to read a quote from a pastor in Colorado. Dear Christian, if your preferred news source stokes your fear, anger, and hatred toward others, rather than inspiring you to want to learn more, empathize, and understand others better, then it is discipling you in the opposite direction from the love of Jesus. It is not my job to tell you what to listen to, but as a Christian brother, I implore you, look at your heart and be honest about what it's producing in your soul for no one else's benefit but your own because it could be creating an obstacle between you and your liberating transformation from following the way of Jesus. Get that out of the way so that you can flourish, so that you can soar. So that's only half the challenge. The other half is experiment this week with mindfully engaging with content that causes you to want to learn more, empathize, and understand others better. Where do I do that? Send me an email. I can send you to some podcasts if that's your thing. But let's just be spontaneous here. Oh, I know. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 might be a great place to engage with content that might bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And if you want to get more specific, I don't know, let's just be arbitrary here, maybe spend 100 days consecutively reading through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And let if you got to have a worldview, forget the evangelical worldview. Go for the Jesus worldview found in the Sermon on the Mount. It is far superior. 